Let's open our Bibles, Matthew chapter 26. Last week, we two weeks ago, actually, in Matthew, we talked about uh, the final section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount of Olives. We talked about the sheep and the goats, and we could be one or the other. And there's nothing in between. We're either a sheep or we're a goat. We're one or the other. And so that's the question we have to ask. Which one are we? Are we a sheep or are we a goat? And uh, we will be separated. There will be a day of reckoning. We'll be separated by the shepherd. And he knows the difference between sheep and goats. And we'll all be gathered there before him, the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And it says that the sheep will be asked to enter in and, and to be with him forever and ever. He says that they would be blessed by the Father. They would have an inheritance waiting in uh, this kingdom that's prepared. And we also saw in that passage that Jesus said that to be a sheep, there would be evidence that would come out of it, evidence that uh, by a life that serves others, the hungry and the thirsty and the stranger, those needing clothes and those that were sick and those in prison. He said, if you've done these things, he says, you've done them unto me. Whatever you've done unto the least of these, you've done unto me. But really, what it is, it's this proof of who we are in Him. And, and uh, uh, we had that question that, that I quoted, that if we were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict us? What kind of evidence is there in our lives that we truly are, truly are one of His sheep? Now, the goats, on the other hand... Uh, he said they would be separated. He, he said, depart from me. They would be separated for eternity from God. They would be cursed. He says that there would be eternal fire, eternal punishments for those that, that are separate from him, those that, that are uh, evidence of a life that's self-centered, that's uncaring, that's unwilling to surrender and submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. But the heart of God is always this, that, that God is is not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to know Him and, and to have eternal life. And that's what we see in John 3.16 and so many other verses, that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have eternal life through faith in Jesus. So I hope today that, that you are truly one of His, that you've made that decision, that you have surrendered to Him and submitted to Him, because that's, that's what it's based upon from here on forward. Now, today in Matthew chapter 26, we see there's two kind of things I want to look at today. One is that we either hate Him or we love Him. We either hate Him or love Him, and this is kind of follows along a little bit here with the sheep and the goats. We're either one or the other. We're with Him or we're against Him. Let's look at Matthew 26, verse 1 and 2. It says, When Jesus had finished saying all these things, He said to His disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. As you know, the Passover is two days away. So, the, in the city of Jerusalem, now you have to kind of see the context of this whole um, time in Jesus' life, this is the last week before the crucifixion, and, and so many things are happening, but, but also, it's also the time of Passover where, where people would be coming to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate this feast, the Passover feast. But Jesus here predicts, you see in the last part of verse 2, the Son of Man will be handed over to be 
to be crucified. And this is the, the fourth prediction of Jesus' suffering. One, two, three, four. It's like over and over and over again, Jesus is telling his disciples, he's telling different people that he was going to have to suffer. You say, well, why does he have to keep repeating it? Why? Because it's our only hope, and, and there was no other way, and Jesus knew that. There was no other way. Jesus knew that. I don't know that they really did. We're going to look at, at this woman here that maybe perhaps she did understand, but I'm not sure that they understood at that time. And, and when it kind of all came down, it says that afterward they did understand. Oh, wow. But Jesus was telling them over and over again the first time, if you recall back in Matthew 16, it says that Peter, he took Jesus aside and he began to rebuke him. The first time he, he began in the book of Matthew anyways to tell them about his crucifixion and, and that he was going to have to suffer and die. The second time it says the disciples were filled with grief in chapter 17, even though he had told them that he was going to rise from the dead, they didn't quite get it, they didn't quite really understand, they didn't really listen to the whole message that Jesus had for them. Third time in chapter 20, he talked about being betrayed and condemned and mocked and flogged and crucified and risen, that he would give his life as a ransom for many. The cross and the resurrection, paying the price for our two biggest problems, one being sin, where the cross pays the price for our sin, and, and death, the second one, where the resurrection is Jesus defeating death. So now he connects it with Passover, and again, it's this festival that celebrates the release of the nation from, from where? From Egypt, that's right. In Exodus chapter 12, you can read all about it, what was happening there. You, you know about the ten plagues, and, and Moses going before Pharaoh, saying, let my people go. And, and finally, the tenth plague is the, the plague of uh, the, the, the death of the firstborn. And the people of Israel, well, they were told to take the blood of a lamb and they, they were told to put it on the doorframe, on the top and on the sides of the doorframe, and that they would be spared from that final plague in Egypt because of the blood that was on the doorframe. And then that Pharaoh would let them go and they would be released from bondage in Israel and they would be released to go and begin their journey to the promised land. This is what the what the celebration of Passover was for them. So Jesus dying during this time is very, very significant. Someone said this, that the year, that this year the Passover would find its true meaning. This was the, the true Passover, where the blood of the Lamb, and, and John the Baptist saw Jesus, you remember, and he said, this is the Lamb of God that takes away what? The sin of the world. And, and so Jesus now comes as the Lamb of God, and, and when, he, when we surrender to Him and we, we submit and, and ask Him to be in our lives and His blood is now upon us, we are free. We are set free to have eternal life. That's what, that's what makes the change in our lives, believing in Jesus Christ and what He did upon that cross 2,000 years ago. you would think that someone came with so much love that everybody would be in love with him. Right? Makes sense, but look in verse 3. It says, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people, they assembled 
in the palace of Caiaphas, palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. He came to give his life, and, and yet these, they hated him. It's interesting, you think about it, they, they wanted to do it quietly, they wanted to not let everybody know about it, but again, being the time of Passover, the city of Jerusalem had swollen in size, like from 50,000 to at least 200,000, and some believe it could even be over a million people were there in the city of Jerusalem during this time of Passover. So they're saying, you know, with all these mega numbers of people, well, we're not, we don't want to, you know, do it now. Let's wait till the things quiet down a little bit and we'll just get rid of him. Of course, the Lord's plan was not that. And Jesus would be crucified during this time of Passover because God's plan would be fulfilled. And there was also a disciple named Judas who said, well, this is the time. And he came to them and and you know the rest of the story. We'll get to that as we move on in the book of Matthew. But I, I found an interesting verse that uh, you've probably read before. If you turn with me to John chapter 11 and verse 47. John chapter 11, verse 47. After, uh, <clears throat> after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, it created quite a stir, as you can imagine that he was dead for many days. And so these same leaders, around this same time, it says they, they called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious ruling party, uh, the leaders. And they said, what are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this, excuse me, here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Well, they really weren't concerned about their place and their nation. They were more concerned about the power that they had, of course. But look at what, at verse 49, then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest. Again, we, we just read about him in, in Matthew 26. He says uh, that year, he spoke up and he said, you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die." For the people, than that the whole nation perish. And he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. You see that prophecy there? One man should die. It's interesting, you know, they. They thought they were in control of things, as so many times we do in our lives too. We think we're in control of things, but really there is one who is in control of the world, and his, his name is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, our great and awesome God. But while they're plotting, while they're showing their hate, look back in, in uh, Matthew chapter 26, contrasting now these Leaders, these Jewish leaders who are plotting to do this, they, they have prophesied even by, uh, you know, not understanding what they were saying, their hate and their jealousy and their anger, but contrasts us now with a woman's love and, 
and a woman's worship. In the next section here, in Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 6, while Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of a man named or known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. It's interesting to think about Jesus is now, and Bethany was the hometown of, of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, the, again, the, the one that Jesus raised from the dead. But they're now in this man's home, and you say, well, how could they do that? Because really, for them to be in a, a leper's home, you really just couldn't go into a leper's home. They, they had to be separate because of this disease, you see. So it, it's believed that he was probably healed by Jesus. But I found it interesting that he still kind of had that name, that he was, uh, it was like he was saying he was Simon the former leper. That God had done something in his life, but that was still kind of, no, wow, look, at that's the guy, it's like Lazarus. When you saw Lazarus, oh, that's the guy, that's the dead guy. But he's not dead any longer. And, and Simon the leper, he's not a leper any longer. And, and what God can do in a person's life, you see, what he's done in your lives, what he's done in my life, it's a work of grace. And now Jesus is there in the home of this man, Simon. So many so many things you can think about when you're reading these passages. He's there in the home of a man named Simon. And to be in our homes, we're going to make this personal. Anthony said that in one of the songs. Let's make this personal. Yeah, let's make it personal. Just to read the Word of God and study it without making it personal is just making it just like a textbook, Right? Well, let's make it personal. Is, it, is, is he coming to visit into our house, into our homes? What's going on in our lives, in our situations? This woman that came to him is most likely Mary, who was the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And she brought this alabaster jar, it says, and just a, the jar itself was very, very beautiful, but it was full of this expensive... Um, perfume that was made from, uh, they say it was made from oil of a plant that was grown in, in India. And she took it, it says, and she poured it on his head. And Mark, in Mark's uh, parallel account of this, says that, he, that she broke the jar. It was like a sealed jar. And so she had to break the top off for it to be able to be poured out and poured it on his head. Now, this is an incredible picture here. This is an incredibly beautiful picture here. But I, I, again, I want to apply it to ourselves. And we say, I've been thinking about this, these verses here and, and about worship and about what we bring to Him and, and, and even about we sing songs and, and all the, the things that we call worship. It isn't just singing songs, though. But it starts off, first of all, she, she has this gift and, it, and, and it, it has to be broken first before it can be poured out. John Corson, the pastor in uh, Oregon, he says that worship often comes through breaking. And, and I think perhaps some of you understand what that means. That uh, we, you know, we, we, 
when everything's going wonderful, there's really not much, we're not thinking about God much, there's not much worship going on there, but, but when we go through this breaking process and, 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 and we're able to, to just fall at the feet of Jesus and worship Him. Another thing we can see here is that this is completely and totally extravagant. Completely, totally extravagant. Uh, this is worship and love to the nth degree, and, and uh, it, it's, it's more than you and I can even comprehend. But it begs the question, does it not? You and I and our worship for Him. How, how, how far does our worship go? Well, I, you know, I go to church when I can. I, I have a Bible. I... You know, I put a dollar in last week. Oh, this really hits home to me. I'm thinking about this. Well, what in my life is, is really extravagant like this? And you say, well, that's just a woman and women worship like that, but men don't. Oh, don't go there. That's not true. We're all called to worship extravagantly, men and women. I think perhaps women sometimes have a little more the openness of their hearts and, and spiritual uh, discernment or, or something like that. I don't know what it is. I can't define it. But to see men worshiping God extravagantly, that is a picture. That is a picture. This... Uh, offering that she brought. Now, uh, it says in Mark's gospel, again, that it was worth a year's wages. And some think that it was probably the most precious possession that she had. Probably, uh, perhaps, was a family heirloom. That this is like the, the, the most important, most valuable, most incredible thing that she actually had in her life. And she's willing to sacrifice to him, someone said, what is most precious. She considered no sacrifice too great for her beloved master, someone said. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? What kind of a sacrifice, what, what is it in my life? And, and for each one of us, I think it's going to be different. It's not, you know, we don't have this kind of thing. We can't say, well, I'm going to go home and get my you know, flask full of, you know, perfume from India. And so unless I have that flask of India, I can't really fulfill what's taking place here. You see, that's like nonsense. But for each one of us, it's different. What is it in my life that I could actually pour out and lay before Him? What's it going to cost me? You remember the story in uh, 2 Samuel where, where David was, uh, he really did some stupid things in his life, just as we all do, and, and he was, you know, he brought judgment upon the people uh, uh, of Israel because he decided he wanted to count the people, number the people. You know the story in 2 Samuel 24. And, and he came to this place, the threshing floor of Arona, and it says that, you know, Arona said to him, Why is my lord the king come to his servant to buy your threshing floor? David answered, So I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. 
He wanted to build this altar to the Lord. And Arana said to David, let, the, let my Lord the king take whatever pleases him and offer it up. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering. Here are the threshing sledges, ox yokes for the wood. He says, oh king, take, you know, I give all this to the king. So he could have taken it all for free and done this, had this incredible offering and all this incredible place. But this is what David said. He said, no. He said, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. What good is it just to give something that doesn't even bother us, doesn't affect us, doesn't make a difference? But when it, when it really is part of us, when it really is, you know, like something substantial, that really is where our hearts get shown for what they are, isn't it not? Is it not? Isn't it not? That's a double negative, right? Someone said this, uh, a gift is never really a gift when we can easily afford it. A gift only becomes a gift when there's sacrifice behind it and when we give far more than we can afford. This isn't just about money, though, folks. This is about whatever it is in our lives that I can truly give. How is it going to affect me? John Corson, again, he said this, what does worship cost you and me? And he's speaking about worship in terms of uh, our, our, our singing of worship. He says... What's it going to cost you and me, our image? He says, there's no way, quoting, he says, there's no way I'm going to sing those songs. I'm way too cool for that. You know, I I can't do that. Why? Because someone might see you singing. Oh, sing? But then we get in our cars and we turn on Light 105 or K something or other and we're blasting that and we're singing along with the devil and uh, I'm going a little too far now, sorry. Why does the devil have all the good music? The truth is he doesn't. And the Lord has given us incredible music, and we saw it here this morning, that just to be able to sing from our hearts and, and, and close our eyes and forget about the things around us and just offer to him some kind of worship. Now, as I said, it's not just about singing songs, and it's not just about putting money in a box. It's whatever it is that, that kind of each one of us is different. Think about things. What, what is really important to you? That you could say, God, I can't, I, you know, I don't want to give this to you because it's so important to me. We don't know what happened in this woman's life. What led up to that? What did she go through? Why, you know, this thing that she had that was so valuable to her. Another thing about this is that once she did offer that up and once she did break the, the, the top of that and pour it out, it says in John that, that the fragrance filled the whole house. It was like it affected the whole house. It affected everybody in the house, you see. And when we worship and when we bring these kinds of things even into our homes, it affects the whole house. But if we, if we don't, What's filling our houses? Is it a fragrance of worship or is it, is it the smell of death and the smell of selfishness and the smell of neglect? You can smell those things, can't you? But when there's worship in a home and you go and you, see, you go, it's like, man, it's like, there's like 
freedom in here. There's like freshness in here. There's like a fresh something going on in here. What, what, if Jesus came into your home and my home, what would, he, what would he experience? Whoa, pastor, you better stop. You're getting a little too close. Getting a little too close to home, aren't we? Isn't that what we're supposed to do here? Looking at God's word? Say, we, we study it. We say, what does it say? What does it mean? And how do I apply it to my life? That's the inductive Bible study in three simple steps. What does it mean? What does it, what does it say? What does it mean? And how do I apply it to my life? We can have all the head knowledge and the book knowledge, but it's got to get down to the heart too. One more thing about this is that she did not hold back. She poured it all out. She didn't say, well, I'm just going gonna, gonna to make a cork and I'm going to pour a little bit of it out and then put the cork in and take the rest back home. No, she poured it all out. She, she poured it all out, not just a sprinkle, not just a couple of drops. So you'd think these disciples, you know, they were pretty spiritual guys, right? They were like, they'd spent all this time with Jesus they knew how incredible he was. They'd seen Lazarus raised from the dead. And uh, <clears throat> you'd think that they would just be like, wow, this is incredible, right? This is awesome. Worship. What happens, though, in verse 8? It says, when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. They were indignant. I had to look that word up because I wanted to make sure I understood what it, what it meant. And uh, one of the definitions was a feeling of righteous anger, a self-righteous anger or disgust. They were indignant that this woman came in and did this to Jesus. Why this waste, they called it. These are the, the disciples. Now, in this passage, it mentions all of them. They were all indignant. We're going to see a little bit later. There's one that was probably a little bit, had some other motives in mind and, and, and things going on there. But they say, waste. The worship of Jesus? A waste? Wasting your life? Worshiping Jesus, some might say so. Some of your family might say, you know, why do you spend so much time talking about God? Why do you go to church on Sunday? You could be at the beach. You could be in all these different places. Why would you waste your life being a missionary or being a, a servant of God or going doing these? Why would you waste your life worshiping Jesus? These are the disciples saying this. People close to Jesus saying this. Someone said people who don't love God or understand His ways always see worship as a waste. They said this perfume, it could have been sold at a high price, money given to the poor. You say, well, they were just being practical. But they weren't being practical. It says they were indignant. They didn't say, well, oh, that's really cool, but you know, we could have done this. No, they were indignant about it, like you silly, you know, probably worse words, woman. But John's gospel tells us that Judas was the one who spoke up. 
And he didn't say, it says he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Of course, John writes that later on. He kind of figures that all out after the whole thing takes place and Judas does his whole thing. It wasn't about the money. It was about Judas and his greed and and, uh, you know, that kind of, that attitude, I think, kind of spread to the other disciples and, you know, they kind of bought into it. Be careful. Be careful what we're listening to. Buy into something that just is just flat out wrong. They bought into it and it was wrong. It was just plain wrong. But Jesus was aware, as he always is in verse 10, aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. That is incredible. Jesus acknowledged her gift, and he called it beautiful. He called it beautiful. There was no waste involved there. He saw it. He acknowledged it. He sees, he sees our hearts. He, see, he knows what's going on with you and I. He's aware of, of, of our relationship to him, and if there's worship or no worship, or if there's a heart that's you know, holding on or a heart that's yielded and open and giving, he's aware of all that. He said in verse 11, he said, The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. You can't say here now, you cannot say that Jesus did not care for the poor, right? You can't say that. Well, that's why he's saying that. The poor you always have with you, but you always have me. That's really not about what it's all about here. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So you're giving maybe in secret. So he's, he's all about, he's, he's not about us being, you know, sh- doing it for show, but he is all about us helping out. In fact, the, the last teaching that he gave just before this was about serving those that were poor and needy. And he says, when you've done it unto them, you've done it unto me. And now the disciples, you say, well, yeah, isn't that, they're just responding to that teaching. They're saying we should have just been doing it to all them, and it's just the same. We could have reached a lot more people, perhaps, because it was so much money and so much extravagance. But, you know, we have to keep, in perspective, we have to keep these things balanced that there is an actual worship of Jesus. We can't say, well, it's all about just doing things for those people out there. There's an actual relationship with Jesus ourselves that we have that, that we can worship Him directly, you see. Yes, we do those things out there and we minister to Him through that, but, but are we ministering and serving Him personally? where we say, Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know, fills my every longing, and worshiping Him directly, extravagantly, not caring what people think. There was this opportunity for this woman, this opportunity before him and before her, and, and really it was, he's, Jesus says there was a limited time. It was right then. She had this opportunity right then. And, and I think there is this idea here that, that, that we don't want to miss an opportunity to worship Him. 
we, we, we come to church perhaps and we feel the Holy Spirit is doing something or we don't even know it's the Holy Spirit and we have this opportunity to respond to Him. We say, well, I'll think about that. And then we go away. And we don't think about it. We get busy. We get other stuff going on. But what about this opportunity when God is speaking to you? Don't let it pass by. Jesus said that, that you know, the poor, you're going to have those opportunities. You'll always have those opportunities. But, but right now, this, she had this opportunity to prepare. You won't always have me. I like what this one man said. He said, there are some things we can do at any time. There are some, there are some things which are can only be done once. And to miss the opportunity to do them then is to miss the opportunity forever. We heard some testimony about this last week. When the opportunity is there, we need to take the opportunity. It says, often we are moved by some generous impulse, and so very often we do not act upon it. And if we do not act upon it, all the chances are that the circumstances, the person, the time, the impulse will never return. For, for so many of us, the tragedy of life is that life is the history of the lost opportunities to do the lovely thing. Is that what our lives are? It's the, 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 the history of the lost opportunities to do the lovely thing. I don't know what the opportunities are going to be for me or for you, but, but when we see them, we need to jump on them. It says in verse 12 there, when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. And I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Did she know? Did she understand about his coming death? Again, as I said earlier, I don't think the apostles really got it. But did she? Jesus said she did it to prepare me for burial. Assuming it was Mary, and Mary, this Mary is only mentioned by name three times in the scripture, mentioned by name, and each time she's mentioned, she is at the feet of Jesus. Each time she's mentioned, she's at the feet of Jesus. Luke chapter 10, the story about Mary and Martha serving and all Martha's all, you know, panicking. And, and it says that she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Number one. Number two, John chapter 11. At the time of Lazarus' death, when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there for her brother. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She was again at his feet, though. And then this particular time here in, in John's gospel, it mentions Mary. It says, Mary took about a pint of pure nard, expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. You put these together, and we, we see that she most likely anointed his head and his feet, you see. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, I, I kind of feel like she did understand. She's one of the few that really understood. Why? Because she took that time to sit at the feet of Jesus. 
And, and there's certainly a picture in there for you and I, not just this one woman, Mary, but each person here, each one of us, to sit at the feet of Jesus. Do we take, do we take a bit of time each and every day to sit at the feet of Jesus? John Corson, again, he had a lot of good quotes this time. He said, when you're at the feet of Jesus in worship, you see things others don't. And it's amazing what you'll see when, like Mary, you take the time to sit at his feet. It's amazing what you'll see. So her worship of Jesus, as he said there, would be told in the memory of her. And the memory of her worship lives on. And we're talking about it here now, some 2,000 years later. We're talking about the, this woman's worship and her, the giving of her life, the givingness of her heart and this extravagant worship, giving him her very best in love and adoration. I wonder what people are going to remember about us. What kind of memories will we leave behind? Oh, he had a really big house or... You know, really important job or really important things. You know what, when I am gone, I'd like people to know that, that I worshipped Jesus. It was a person that loved to worship Jesus. And we saw it. Extravagant worship. Giving Him our best and love. We either love Him or hate Him. What's it going to be? Let's pray together, shall we?